The arrival was announced with the sounding of Fort Bowie's six-pound cannon on April 11, 1886. A coach pulled up into the fort, drawn by six mules, before coming to a stop in front of the house of Major Eugene B. Beaumont, the post commander. The dignitary inside of said coach stepped out and was greeted by General George Crook, who offered a proper, businesslike handshake. The new visitor dined with Major Beaumont before walking over to where Crook had his office to discuss the lay of the land and, as always, the state of affairs with the Apache. Then it was over. But the dignitary didn't leave. In fact, he started unpacking. Instead, it was Crook who was on his way out. Because this wasn't just another high-ranking officer or political official coming to do a publicity tour or fact-finding mission of the frontier. The meeting on that April day, which must have been filled with tension and clenched jaws, was between Crook and his bitter rival, General Nelson A. Miles. Miles, a longtime detractor of both Crook and his policies, was there on orders from the Army's top brass. He was there to take command. The next day, April 12th, Crook met with some of his scouts whom he had gotten to know over the past several years. Miles spoke too, though it was clear that he had a lot less sympathy for those Apache living on the reservation. And then, with very little ceremony, Crook, the Gray Fox, Natan Lupin, was on his own carriage and gone. It would now be up to Miles, often described as an effective, though ambitious, arrogant peacock, to do the one thing Crook couldn't. Finally, bring in Geronimo. I'm your host, David Rookhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 109, Two Telegrams. Welcome back, everyone. Last week, we left off with C.S. Fly managing to take some amazing photos of General Crook and Geronimo hashing out terms of the latter's surrender. Or what was supposed to be his surrender, at least. Because at the last second, Geronimo, Nietzsche, and some 40 of their followers bolted for the Sierra Madres again. To recap slightly, and to set up what's about to happen, Geronimo biographer Robert M. Utley says that Crook made three big mistakes during these negotiations. The first was waiting so long to have Kaitene sent from Alcatraz, which delayed his leaving Fort Bowie and arriving at the negotiation site. First Lieutenant Marion Moss had been down there for weeks waiting for the hostiles to arrive, and yet Crook still somehow showed up late. This unnecessary delay allowed the Apache to indulge in Charles Tribolet's liquor, all the while becoming increasingly more surly and distrustful. The second mistake was leaving the negotiations immediately after getting the terms of surrender, leaving it to Moss and others to herd the hostiles back into the U.S. I'm not sure it's a foregone conclusion that Crook could have stopped this last breakout, but I do think it may have made Geronimo think twice. After all, the wily old renegade did have a certain fear of Crook, thinking he possessed supernatural powers. 
But the really big mistake, and the one that sets up what's about to happen next, is that he had put a return to Arizona on the table during the negotiations. No one in Arizona wanted Geronimo there, and the officials back in Washington had made it clear that they wanted all hostile Chiricahua shipped to Florida where they couldn't cause any more trouble. But Crook, perhaps thinking that it was the only terms that Geronimo would accept, had said that the Apache could return after two years. And that one promise led directly to the General's swift exit. Crook and his entourage arrived at Fort Bowie around 3 p.m. on March 29, 1886, after trudging through an hours-long sandstorm. Once there, he sent General Philip Sheridan, General-in-Chief of the entire U.S. Army, a telegram saying that he had met with Geronimo and he had negotiated a surrender. The only caveat was that he couldn't quite get the unconditional surrender that Sheridan and President Grover Cleveland had wanted, but he had to act quickly to bring the Apache to heel, and Sheridan had given him some wiggle room to negotiate, so he had done what was necessary to end all hostilities. This news communicated, Crook went to sleep. It had been a hard march back to Fort Bowie, following several tense days of negotiating. So Crook probably went to bed that night feeling pretty good. After all, he had done it. Despite all the criticism, all the people who doubted him, all the mutual distrust between the White Eyes and the Chiricahua, he had ended the Apache Wars. But then the next day came. On March 30th, Crook would receive two telegrams, each one shattering whatever contentment he might have felt the previous night. The first was from Sheridan, who informed him that President Cleveland had invalidated Crook's agreement with the Apache. They could surrender and keep their lives, but that was it. Sheridan told Crook that he had to go back and tell the Apache that they had to surrender and be sent east, but there would be no talk of them ever returning to Arizona. If they failed to surrender under these terms, Crook was to gather his forces and utterly destroy them. Period. End of story. Crook was aghast at this reply. It showed a clear lack of understanding on the part of his superiors, as well as a healthy dose of disdain that Americans always felt towards Amerindians. But more than that, it would make him out to be a liar. He couldn't go back to Geronimo and the others now and say that the White Eyes had just simply changed their mind and now the Apache had to submit unconditionally. They were too used to double dealing and would see it as treachery. Worse, they would have seen it as Crook's treachery. The only reason he had an iota of respect from them is because they trusted him. In his biography of Crook, Longtime aide Captain John Burke would make the general out to be an almost Washington-esque I-cannot-tell-a-lie figure who did not just not lie, but also made sure the Apache understood the meaning of everything he said. I can't vouch for that last interpretation, but my impression of Crook was that he was a straight shooter. So he shot back, 
replying to Sheridan that if he were to do as he was being ordered, the Apache would bolt, guaranteed. The terms he had offered were the only ones they would accept. Crook had even said, en hua. That was that. But later that afternoon, the second fateful telegram arrived at Crook's doorstep. This one was from Lieutenant Moss, informing Crook that just that morning, Geronimo and Nietzsche had split. They were long gone. After arguing that Sheridan shouldn't make him go back and negotiate, Crook had to go hat in hand and tell him that there was no longer anyone to negotiate with. It was the ultimate embarrassment, and one that you better believe Crook's critics would harp on. Back in Washington, Sheridan received the news with shock that quickly turned to anger. He sent a telegram back to Crook where he made clear his utter exhaustion with this whole situation. Then he really crossed the line. Sheridan began to insinuate that wasn't it very convenient that Geronimo and 40-plus other people were able to get away when they were surrounded by your uber-loyal Apache scouts? He then issued the orders that Crook was to develop a new defensive strategy to protect Arizona from raids using the 46 companies of infantry and the 4 companies of cavalry at his disposal. You know, real soldiers, not these treasonous Apache who would join the enemy any day now. And that was enough for Crook. He fired back a telegram instantly, declaring that his scouts were thoroughly loyal, and if they could have prevented the breakout, they would have. Furthermore, if they hadn't had the success that Sheridan demanded, it was because fighting Apache was hard, especially in the wilds of Mexico. His plan would work if he were to be given time and a little bit of faith. Unfortunately, Crook realized that he was short on both those things. So he punctuated his reply with, quote, It may be, however, that I am too much wedded to my own views in this matter, and as I have spent nearly eight years of the hardest work of my life in this department, I respectfully request that I may now be relieved from its command. End quote. There are two different ways of taking this request. One is that Crook, much like John Clum back on the San Carlos Reservation, saw himself as the one indispensable man who could bring order from chaos and so threatened to resign to get his way. And I will concede that there is merit to that idea. Historian Edwin R. Sweeney says that Crook had threatened resignations before over the whole Apache hassle. But, on the other hand, even Sweeney concedes that this time... Crook meant it. He had had it. He was done with the Apache. He was done with leaders in Washington making pronouncements with no first-hand knowledge. He was done with the press. He was done with the long stream of complaints. So now he said en hua to the whole business. Crook, out. Utley surmises Crook's last year of command as the general being trapped in a vice. On the one hand, everyone had to concede that Crook knew what he was talking about. He had been on the ground, been dealing with the Apache firsthand. From his immediate superior officer all the way up to Sheridan, 
they all had a measure of faith in Crook's abilities and his read on the situation, even if no one really got on board with his method of using scouts. But on the other hand, Crook's experience clashed violently with the inexperience of leaders in Washington. Sheridan, Secretary of War William C. Endicott, and President Cleveland were armchair quarterbacks at best, knowing only as much about the Apache as they gleaned from Crook's reports and the newspapers, much of it yellow journalism, of the day. And so they complained loudly about what was taking Crook so long, and why had he foregone using brave American troops and invested so much in these savages whose loyalty was questionable at best? They thought they knew better, and really they didn't. Now, the one other major factor in this is that Crook didn't do himself any favors with his own brusque personality. He may have known what he was doing, but he also acted as a know-it-all. As I said before, he was convinced of his own plan, but he, he just wouldn't bother explaining what exactly his plan was. By keeping things so close to the vest, he put off a lot of people. The most recent example was Maz, who had been left sitting for nearly a month because Crook wouldn't confide in him or even acknowledge his reports. Had Crook actually taken the time to explain the value of Apache Scouts and why he believed what he believed, it could have saved him a lot of hassle. If he had been just a little more thick-skinned and a tad more friendly, maybe he would have had more allies. But in the end, despite his knowledge and expertise, the army allowed its foremost authority on the Apache to walk away. On April 2nd, 1886, Sheridan responded to Crook's offer of resignation by accepting it and transferring him to the command of the Department of the Platte. And believe it or not, the day only got busier from there. Because the day beforehand, the remains of Captain Emmett Crawford, originally buried in Sonora, had been brought up to Fort Bowie before it was to be loaded on a train heading east for his family. Accompanying Captain Crawford's remains on this last trip was Captain John Burke, who had been reassigned to a post in Washington. So on April 2nd, on the same day, Crook said goodbye to two of his closest associates in the world, one of them for the very last time. But the departure of Crawford's remains were actually delayed by yet another big event, the arrival of Chihuahua, Usana, Nana, and the 50 other Apache that had surrendered with them. After arriving, these were directed to an area less than a mile west of the fort, where they made camp and were soon joined by their families, whom Crook had been keeping at Fort Bowie. For the Apache, and definitely for Chihuahua, it was the culmination of everything they had hoped for since breaking out of the reservation nearly a year earlier. And still the day refused to quiet down, because in the afternoon, Sheriff Robert Hatch out of Tombstone arrived. Believe it or not, the sheriff had come because he had a warrant for the arrest of Chihuahua, Nana, and the other hostile Chiricahua. This was only to be expected, after all. Most of the citizens in Arizona wanted to see the Apache utterly destroyed. Killing off the leading Chiricahua would have been a good start until they could finally get their hands on Geronimo. 
But as you might expect, Crook thanked Sheriff Hatch for coming, but told him there was no way in Hades he was complying with the warrant unless the Secretary of War himself signed it. Hatch, probably very miffed and definitely not able to get that kind of muscle, was forced to leave. This day ended with a meeting between Chihuahua, Alchese, and Kaitane. The once crazed hostile leader Chihuahua was overjoyed about being reunited with his family and so openly admitted that he had done some very bad things in the last year. However, he blamed a lot of this on Geronimo for dragging him off the reservation in the first place with lies, which we know was true. Chihuahua also told the pair that he was pretty sure Nietzsche, who had similarly ditched the reservation due to Geronimo's lies, would eventually tire of life on the run and come in. However, Geronimo, that was a different story. Geronimo would never come in now, he said. The next day, April 3rd, Sheridan wired Crook to have him put Chihuahua and all with him on a train as quickly as possible. So arrangements started to be made. But later that afternoon, Lieutenant Moss showed up at Fort Bowie. He had not originally come in with Chihuahua and the rest because he and his men had gone off chasing after Geronimo and Nietzsche. Obviously, he hadn't found them, but what he did find were two Chiricahua men who were, for lack of a better term, deserters. They claimed that on the morning of March 30th, they had heard a commotion in their camp and assumed something was very, very wrong, so they had fled with Geronimo and Nietzsche. This story of innocence might have been the truth, but it's just as likely that they had grown tired of the renegade lifestyle and didn't want to flee in the first place, and they just wanted to be with their families and their people. Either way, their defection meant that Geronimo Nietzsche had only 18 warriors with them. The rest of their 40 followers were either women or children. Now, Burke in his biography of Crook remarks that if the general had not been relieved of command, he could have used these men to send runners to Geronimo's camp, which would have brought everyone in without any shots being fired. I applaud Captain Burke's enthusiasm, but again, I think he lets his feelings for his general take him a little too far. Okay, now there is a little matter that we still have to deal with here. Amid the hustle and bustle and the whole being replaced thing, Crook never got around to telling Chihuahua or any of the other Chiricahua that the deal they had accepted had been nullified by the president. They all thought they are going to take a short two-year trip and come home again. And Crook, despite Burke's assertion about his honesty and honor, decided not to disabuse them of that notion. The general wrote to Sheridan saying that he was refraining from telling them that the terms had been voided because if Geronimo and Nietzsche found out, then there would be no bringing them in. And Sheridan eagerly agreed with this decision, rationalizing that when Geronimo ran out on Crook, he broke his conditions of surrender anyway and therefore voided those conditions himself. Though he may have been willing to keep Chihuahua in the dark, Crook was actually disgusted with Sheridan's mental gymnastics to fully justify reneging on everything. He would write in his diary that Sheridan was, quote, trying to say something without saying it, 
end quote. Once again, though, it's not like anyone really has the moral high ground here. Crook's last acts in office were to take Santiago McKinn, the boy taken captive by Geronimo in September, and make sure he was given back to his family. He might have been too late for Charlie McComas, but at least Crook got somebody home. On April 6th, he told the Apache scouts about what was going to happen, setting off a shockwave with six words. I am going to leave you. Crook thanked them for their loyalty and accomplishments, to make sure that they knew it was appreciated by him, because certainly no other American officer appreciated them. He also took the time to moralize just a little bit, warning the Apache that they really needed to stop binging on Tiswin and they needed to start raising stock. But then he turned to Chihuahua and told him to have his people ready to go before noon the next day. On April 7, 1886, Crook marched out of Fort Bowie with 76 Chiricahua in tow, a combination of those who had surrendered and those who had been kept at Fort Bowie. When they reached the Bowie Rail Station, they were joined by another son of Chihuahua who had been up at Fort Apache. Standing on the rail platform, they met the officers who were to accompany them east to Florida. Lieutenant James Richards had been assigned as quartermaster and temporary agent in Florida, and had been wired enough rations to get the group through the trip. Crook, maybe perhaps feeling a twinge of guilt, advanced Richards $125 so he could buy the Apache some coffee as well. Then something happened that had not occurred in the long history of dealing with the Chiricahua. The army disarmed them. Believe it or not, but every time the Chiricahua had surrendered in the past and had been shepherded onto a reservation, there was never a move to take away their guns. They had kept them, with the rationalization that they needed them to hunt, and the White Eyes had always let them. But now they were going to be permanently disarmed. This caused no small stir of nervousness from the warriors present, but Chihuahua managed to exert all the influence he could, and in the end, the weapons were handed over. Then the Chiricahua were loaded onto a special train with three sleeper cars especially for them and one for their escorts, which slowly chugged out of the station on their way to Fort Marion, Florida, where they would arrive six days later. Among this group were some notable Apache that have made continual appearances on this podcast. Chihuahua, Usana, and Nana. With them went two wives and three children of Geronimo, in addition to two wives and two children of Naiche. Among them also was Huera, the wife of Mangus, the expert Tiswin brewer who had helped persuade Geronimo to go on the run. There were only 15 men, and that's counting five who were in their late teens or early 20s, 29 women, and 33 children. Only one of them spoke some English. And all of them believed that they were going to serve their time and then be back in a couple of years. Crook would never tell Chihuahua that he was being sent away for life. In fact, of the 77 people shipped away by train that morning, only two of them would ever return to the Southwest. And it's no one who's been named in this podcast. Crook showed little sympathy for them, however, 
writing in his diary simply, quote, It is a big relief to get rid of them. End quote. Whatever relief Crook felt about being let go from his position and getting Chihuahua and the rest on the train was surely counteracted by what he had to do next. Because Sheridan's orders from April 2nd transferring him to the Department of the Platte also contained the announcement of who would replace him. And I just can't imagine Crook taking well the news that his bitter rival and determined detractor, General Nelson A. Miles, had been given the gig. Still, being the consummate soldier, Crook gritted his teeth and shook Miles' hand when he arrived on April 11th. After the formalities were over, he got into his coach and set off for his actual office in Prescott to clean out his desk. With very few exceptions, the press greatly celebrated Crook's departure. The tombstone epitaph, who seems never to have printed a good thing about the general in all the years he was in Arizona, sent him off with a healthy bit of satire, saying, quote, The citizens of Cochise County bid you an affectionate farewell and trust that your declining years may be as quiet and peaceful as have been your military career in Arizona. End quote. Way to kick a man when he was down, tombstone epitaph. At this point, however, I don't think Crook cared what anyone had to say about him. He would move on to his new post in Omaha, Nebraska, where he would spend the rest of his career and life. Despite his rather abrupt end in Arizona, he was still a good enough soldier to be elevated to the rank of Major General by President Cleveland in 1888. His later years are rather unremarkable, although Burke recounts that he did help stave off conflict with the Ute peoples of Colorado. He was also part of a commission to the Sioux peoples to negotiate for them to give up more land than they were actually using, ultimately resulting in opening up 11 million acres for American settlers. I know Burke meant that last part as a good thing, but, you know, looking back on it, no, no, that was not a good thing. However, among the Sioux, Crook seems to have won the same reputation for honesty that he had among the Apache. The Sioux chief Red Cloud would later say, quote, Then General Crook came. He, at least, had never lied to us. End quote. Still, Crook could not help but involve himself in Apache affairs. Not to get too far ahead of our story, but in the year after Crook left, the U.S. government decided to go back to their original plan to deal with the Chiricahua issue. That is, round up every single one, regardless of whether they had broken out with Geronimo or not, and cart them all off to Florida. Crook was beyond horrified at this decision, just as he had been when Sheridan first floated the idea in November of 1885. Though he had to tread lightly due to politics, he was disagreeing with the policy of the sitting president, after all, Crook did everything he could to advocate for the Apache. He was fine with punishing Geronimo, Nietzsche, Chihuahua, and the others. They had broken out of the reservation, and they had gone on a rampage. But the government's policy totally ignored the Apache who had stayed peaceful and then had volunteered to hunt down Geronimo and his ilk. Crook couldn't stand that a faithful and dedicated scout like Chato had been lumped together with Geronimo and deported to Florida. As early as October 1st, 1886, so less than six months from his departure of Fort Bowie, 
Crook was writing to Burke to have the Indian Rights Association look into conditions at Fort Marion. Spoiler alert, they were not good. And it was because of Burke's tenacity that the Chiricahua would be moved to the Mount Vernon Barracks in Alabama as a temporary measure. Crook continued to insist that they be treated well, and even scouted a new reservation site for them in North Carolina. In early 1890, he even made an unannounced visit to Mount Vernon to see the Apache. He met up with many old faces, including Chatto, but he refused to even let Geronimo speak to him, quote, for he is such a liar, end quote. This would be the last time Crook would see the Apache he had toiled with for all those years. Three months later, on March 21, 1890, Crook passed away suddenly from a heart attack at the Grand Palace Hotel in Chicago. He was 61 years old. Originally buried in Oakland, Maryland, he and his wife would both be moved in 1898 to Arlington National Cemetery. In fact, the cemetery contains a Crook Walk named for him. So if you have already visited the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier and JFK's Eternal Flame, here is something else to see the next time you're in Arlington. As we have discussed, at nauseum, Crook has a complicated legacy. His campaign in 1872-73 was sheer brilliant and brought most of the hostile tribes in Arizona to the reservations when no one else could make that happen. Of course, the government really didn't have any right to have him do so, but that's a whole other story. He was then called back in 1882 to clean up the mess that John Clum and others had made in the previous decade and attack the problem with energy and vigor, with his march into the Sierra Madres in 1883 managing to spook just about every Chiricahua. And he was honest generally fair, and actually wanted more than to just grind the Apaches into the dirt. But at the same time, he was closed off, brusque, and politically inept to the point that it's no wonder he was replaced. Still, I think it's fair to say that any success that Miles is going to have is because Crook already loosened the lid of the ketchup bottle. The most fitting tribute I can think of for Crook are two incidents that Burke slips in at the end of his biography. The first is that upon hearing about the death of Crook, the Gray Fox, Natan Lupin, the Chiricahua scouts who served under him sat down together, let down their hair, and wept like children. The second is that Crook's successor as the commander of the Department of the Platte made sure to protect and feed Crook's old, retired personal mule that had carried the general for nearly two decades. That mule's name, you might recall, was Apache. Join me next week as General Miles, the brave peacock, tries to outdo his departed rival, only to discover that cornering Geronimo was not as easy as he had thought. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ the history of Arizona. Goodbye.